2: future of healthcare is value-based, but there's something standing between us and that future. Fragmented data. To succeed in APM contracts, providers need to access and exchange individual and population-level data so they can fully understand patients' needs, risk factors, and costs. Edifex. EMR agnostic, interoperable, and AI enabled technology helps providers unify and utilize data for a more complete digital portrait of patient populations. The result? Better clinical, financial, and compliance outcomes. To learn how Edifex's applications can enhance prospective risk adjustment and value based contract performance, visit edifex.com today. Race to Value listeners, today we're going to shift the paradigm and unlock the future of value-based care. We have a really thought-provoking episode for you this week. We're going to delve into the transformative world of value-based care. We're going to explore the multifaceted assets that are reshaping our future. We're going to dissect the vital components of a paradigm shift. Everything that's happening from tackling social determinants of health and championing health equity to seamlessly integrating behavioral health into patient care, We're going to discover how population health enablement is empowering our communities, while bundled payments revolutionize the healthcare landscape. We're also going to uncover the incredible role of technology in patient outreach, enabling unprecedented levels of personalized care and accessibility. This is an important conversation and also critical that we explore physician engagement, which is a driving force behind the success of value-based care. So today we're going to peer into a crystal ball and envision the future of not only value-based care, but hospitals and embracing change and embracing innovation. So I have some inspiring leaders for you today. We're joined by two leaders from Cedar sinai Dr. Caroline Goldsweg. Chief Medical Officer for Cedar Sinai Medical Care Foundation, and Cynthia Deculis, Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer for Cedar Sinai. This is an organization that has a long history in value based care, both in terms of accepting full risk for seniors in Medicare Advantage as well as participating in multiple commercial ACOs. Their medical network and medical centers collaborate in both population health models as well as episodic care, where they leverage a population health toolkit to support patients with various clinical conditions. They currently have more than 140,000 patients in their value-based care programs. And we're also joined by Dr. Michael Consuelos, Vice President Strategy, Growth, and Innovation Consulting at Optum Insight. Optum Insight is a healthcare technology and services company. They offer a wide range of solutions that help healthcare organizations improve their performance and outcomes. And in the area of value-based care, they're working with providers, payers, and other stakeholders to develop and implement strategies that improve the quality of care while reducing costs. So, yeah, Another great episode from Race to Value. Thanks for joining us this week, and please subscribe to our newsletter at racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter so you don't miss out on future episodes. I wanted to welcome you all, Cynthia, Caroline, Michael. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Absolutely. Thank you. I always like to think of value-based care, both in terms of the economic imperative, but also the moral imperative. And, you know, I'm reminded of a quote that Mahatma Gandhi once said, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. And, you know, the same can be said of healthcare organizations that are serving patients in their local communities. It just doesn't get any clearer than that. You know, serving the underserved right now and value-based care is the vehicle to do that is clearly on the minds of a lot of people right now. I mean, we see now with the CMS Innovation Center's newest uh, and most innovative payment model ACO REACH, it stands for Realizing Equity Access in Community Health. So with this intersection with vulnerability and minoritized populations, we really have to start thinking about value-based care and health equity is one and the same, and it's gonna require us to really double down on our commitment for social determinants of health and, and making sure that we can uh, uh, reduce those barriers that uh, marginalized uh, communities see. You know, we have to be able to get out there as healthcare organizations where people live, <laughs> work, play, worship, eat, and gather, and really think about how do we restore community health and while also reducing total cost of care. So. You know, I wanted to ask you all as we start our conversation today. I'd love to get your perspective on this emerging role of healthcare providers in addressing SDOH. You know, things like housing instability and food insecurity and transportation. Are we now at a tipping point in value based care where SDOH is more than just a buzzword? Uh, Michael, would you like to go ahead and start the conversation?
0: Yeah, thank you, Eric, and um happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. It's so, yeah, so in fact, I'll just this is a little bit of recency bias, but I was on a call yesterday, and they're describing what's happening in some states, in the Medicaid market specifically, right? And there's a lot more movement towards starting to look at um, health equity and SDOH and starting writing to those, those contracts. And my comment to the group and the client group was, you know, we've always known this is important, And we're, to your point, we're finally seeing major movement in this direction. And I was, I remember the days eight, 10 years ago or plus, uh, you know, speaking to folks at CMS, HHS around this topic and how do we have... Uh, how do we fold in uh, SDH factors and, and risk, and how does that really impact the quality of care and outcomes? And it, it was a difficult conversation to have because I'm sure the other folks on on this panel have been thinking the same thing, and there really wasn't a whole lot of movement really until recently, right? And I and I think that there's no – an example that I would take is uh, my mother, who has lots of health problems – uh, she has a son who's a physician. She has great insurance. She can get herself and has people to take her for her health care. Very different from the same age-matched woman who with the same medical problems who may be, let's say, North Philly, which I'm very familiar with, who lives on the second story of a row home with very poor transportation and support systems, her ability to really get care that she needs. Completely two different worlds. And for us, not to see that difference in in ways that we get paid, the way we actually implement change and deliver care is sort of ignoring the facts of of the, the reality. So yeah, 100%, I can really applaud what's happening both at the state and federal level for us to move closer to identifying these health equity SDOH factors and, and, and changing the way we're incented, the way that we actually, the total cost of care is figured out, the star ratings, everything else is now permeating what really should have been happening uh, years,
2: decades ago. Yeah, and <laughs> I would love to hear what Cedar Sinai is doing in this yeah, area.
1: I think what Michael talked about, you know, we really are seeing on the ground. When you're thinking about value, you know, when, when, you, when you as an organization are taking responsibility for the overall health of that patient and for, as you said, the total cost of care, the quality of care, the outcomes, you have to think about everything that drives health. And that's what's sort of amazing about, in a way, about moving towards a more value-oriented way of looking at healthcare delivery because it it, make, it, it makes you, even as a physician, realize that there's more than just you're writing a prescription. Um, there's so much that goes into what makes people healthy, what gets them to adhere to your care plan, what keeps them out of the hospital. If you you start to appreciate what the impact of your living situation is, if you have food insecurity, if you can't think about your health because you're worried about, you know, how are gonna pay your rent or your utilities? All of those things are critical to understand as a a provider, um, a physician, you know, whoever it is who's helping the patient, so that you can help them get and attain the greatest possible health. And I think what what will be hard, though, is for individual physicians in their own private practice to have the wherewithal to do to address these kinds of things. And I think it really does drive much more of a system approach to care, because in the end, to address social determinants of health, you kind of need, need people around you because they don't teach it in medical school, for instance, you need need the help of social workers, of care managers, you need, you you know, all of that kind of thing. But it is, to me, a way that we're going to help to drive better equity for everyone.
3: I'll just add, so I work very closely with our ambulatory care managers who are nurses and our ambulatory social workers and I think to answer your question, Eric, about whether we've reached a tipping point, I think if I were to channel them, they would say, "You're all finally catching up, because this is the work that they've been doing, you know, for years." And you know, you mentioned uh, in our intro that we've been involved in Medicare Advantage, full risk Medicare Advantage, for the past 30 years. And I think it's always very surprising for people to hear that our seniors. Are very well insured. The seniors who have Medicare Advantage, you know, Part C plans are very well insured, but they're living in their car, and you know, the ability to, you know, really help them navigate all the healthcare needs they have is is so secondary to you know everything else that's going on in their lives. Um, you also mentioned, you know, our commitment to sort of episodic care, and when we look at this through our hospital lens, 40% of our Medicare discharges are patients who are dual eligible, who are, you know, have Medi-Cal as their secondary insurance. And what we've really learned is that you can't assume who these folks are. You really need to understand the demographics and, you know, know your own population. In our catchment area, the dual eligible Medicare patients um, are probably a little different than in other people's catchment areas. In ours, the top languages spoke, spoken by those patients is Russian and Farsi, and so it's a different culture, you know, different cultural needs, different, you know, un, you know, expectations, different ways to reach them and be where they are and different places to reach them in the community. So you really need, you can't just make assumptions, you really need to know your data and to customize your interventions.
2: These interventions are so crucial and, you know, I'm encouraged by what you all are saying about this, there being a tipping point in value-based care. And, you know, as we're thinking about the future of health value, I can't also help but think about something else that's really impacting the populations that we serve and that's uh, behavioral health uh, challenges. I mean, right now, you know, one in five Americans, about 51 million people are living with a behavioral health condition, and that's the most recent stat, and that uh, predates the pandemic. I mean, there's right now about 20 million individuals in the U.S. with the substance use disorder, about nine million people, which is about 4% of the population that's had have had suicidal thoughts. Uh, you know, those with mental health or substance abuse issues, uh, a lot of times, you know, they're unpaid caregivers and they're minority populations, which are really vulnerable. And if you look at the, kind of the, the impact that that has on uh, value-based care. I mean, these patients, you know, have a three to four times higher frequency of uh, uh, comorbidities uh, uh, with chronic disease. Um, you know, these are, are people that cost as much as fifty percent more than those uh, without a behavioral health condition. Linda, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, as we think about the future of value, we really have to activate advanced primary care and integrate behavioral health um, within that model. So I wanted to ask you all if you could provide perspective on, you know, how to achieve better integration of behavioral health and uh, primary care as we're thinking about the future of value.
1: Yeah, I I can definitely speak to that. Um, We we identified this as a major issue for us a number of years ago um, that there were um, One of the some of the major reasons why our our patients were going to the emergency department where they really didn't need to be there or even getting admitted was related to behavioral issues, behavioral health issues, whether, you know, untreated depression, substance use disorder, that kind of thing. Um, What we've done most recently is we we made a decision to um, to embark on a collaborative care model for management of mild to moderate depression, anxiety in our primary care practices. And it was based on what you talked about, um, what we know about the needs of patients. It was um, driven by the incredible demand, particularly during the pandemic for mental health services, the unmet demand. And then it was also driven by um, wanting to address the wellness of our primary care physicians because they, they often felt ill-equipped to manage the mental health needs of their patients. And you know, 30% of, or more of patients with mental health needs are managed by PCP. So um, we embarked on um, creating a program where uh, the model is based on one developed um, in uh, Washington State that has really great outcomes, the AIM program, um, in terms of medical outcomes, even when you manage the mental health needs of your patients. And basically we um, provide some licensed clinical social work support for cognitive behavioral therapy, evidence-based therapy, while the... PCPs get guidance from a psychiatrist on prescribing medications. And this is done within primary care, um, but it offloads the PCP um, because of the availability of the therapy. And, and one of our PCPs in focus groups has called it anti-work, which we take as a huge endorsement um, for the program. And we're just um, sort of looking at the, the outcomes from it. We're, we're seeing really excellent results when it comes to managing those conditions. And we're going to, as more and more patients get get enrolled, we're hoping to repeat what the literature has shown around, you know, diabetes outcomes and other um, chronic disease outcomes.
3: I'll, I'll just add one other um, piece to that. The same psychiatrist who is overseeing the collaborative care model also serves as an advisor to our care coordination team. And for our value-based contracts, where we are really kind of keeping a close eye on patients during their transitions of care and those who are, I'm going to use the term I learned, Eric, from your podcast, um, and MVPs, multiple visit patients, um, we meet with, you know, we huddle once a week as a team to really discuss those patients. And um, our psychiatrist is part of that huddle. And we joke that he's there to help us, you know, the care team, but truly the advice and coaching that he gives to the care managers, to the social workers, you know, to everyone who's involved in kind of helping patients navigate the system, he, um, you know, it's invaluable. And he helps the team use the right words and you know he's teaching them kind of cognitive behavioral therapy as we go and he's helping them be creative in terms of connecting patients to resources so you know it's one psychiatrist kind of touching hundreds of patients that way
0: yeah without repeating um (laughs) what has been said before i think i agree with all all those accounts i kind of want to maybe add a little bit more or uh, add a different um, information to the conversation a little bit from a different perspective. From from my purview, um, the behavioral health, primary care I- integration, and, and lots of the parts around behavioral health has been a, a workforce story for many, many of our, our hospital clients, healthcare clients. Just, just we're never going to make enough behavioral health uh, professionals to take care of the population of these folks, right? So, so we start thinking about um, how to use technology as a force multiplier. Or how does that, out of the platforms, enable um, the hub-and-spoke model that's just been described, right? How does that enable that? How do you provide, at the point of care, uh, the, the the clinical pathways or behavioral health pathways to the primary care folks? Uh, what's happening also in the primary care areas that you start seeing the continued medical education of the CME now really involving behavioral health and, and the boards. And so there's also an educational wave that's happening to help the primary care folks take care of the lower acuity, uh, anxiety, depression, behavioral health uh, disorders, so that, um, that you can build that hub spoke model and you can integrate because they are taking some of the workforce issues off of the, uh, the the psychiatrist or other behavioral health specialist, and as you, as everybody's mentioned, it also because you see a lot of comorbidity, right? So it's hard to see a teenager or in my you know it's my pediatrician who has all these medical problems and they also have anxiety or depression. You just can't like we're not going to talk about that. Let somebody else take care of it. No, you have to. That that is whole person care, right? That is that depression screening is important to understand maybe how why their diabetes is not under great control. I see that as just as as good care. The other thing I would add is I know we're talking about primary care but I've been in uh, in the past 2 months two separate uh, conversations with organizations and hospital systems who are building out inpatient beds for psychiatry, which has been really a decade ago. Nobody wanted to build uh, inpatient beds. They were trying to shoehorn them into their existing facility or try to farm them out. Now, I think they've sort of realized a lot of the origin or large organizations is they need to start building that capacity, which will allow them to decompress their emergency department, decompress, or decrease their length of stay, but also are a great place when the, the um, High-intensity outpatient intensive therapy doesn't work. You can't just keep the person. They end up in your ED anyway, right? So, so they're also, I think, the continuum of care is starting to be widened, and organizations are starting to try to starting to see how it how it makes economic sense, but also a sense to the communities they serve. So, I'm seeing a lot of activity, not just in primary care, but across the band of healthcare to try to to uh, help. Um, Individuals with behavioral health problems, but also understanding that it does impact length of stay, ED holds, total cost of care. So it's, it's, it's a whole person solution they're trying to come to the market with.
2: Well, you know, there's another challenge I think that we have, and I wanted to bring it up because I know Cedar Sinai is so um, successful in this area. But you know, looking at the impact of uh, cancer and managing a population, and you know, I, you know, I, I think in value-based care, and we have to really be thinking about how to serve uh, patients and and, and uh, close in on some of the racial disparities in care that we see with patients with a cancer diagnosis. I mean, there was a report that came out last year and. You know, it stated that 34 percent of all deaths from cancer could be prevented by 2035 if we eliminated these disparities. And, you know, by doing so, you know, it could uh, save about 230 billion in direct costs and about a trillion dollars in terms of indirect cost to society so I, I just wanted to ask if you also could uh maybe comment on um what can be done to improve equity in cancer care you know just through yeah. early detection and screenings is there a way that um we yeah. could also you know think about this as the industry moves to value
1: yeah why don't i start and cynthia may you have something to add um we've really um been focusing on this for the last couple of years um uh Our quality program has been very robust and we've kind of stagnated and um, when it comes to cancer screening and um, when we did a deep dive looking at that, what we found is that we weren't meeting the needs of all of the populations and there were differences in rates of screening um, for patients with different racial ethnic backgrounds, you know, uh, primary language. We saw differences between our employee patients and non-employee patients. So just there's lots of ways to, to, to slice it. Um, and so we've tried to embark on um, understanding what goes into that and what, what can we do? What, what are we doing that doesn't meet the needs of individ- you know, different groups of people? And I think that's taken us really to, um, to trying to drive home with our frontline teams that you need a bit of a personalized approach when it comes to cancer screening, for instance, and really to any the management of any kind of medical condition, you have to meet people where they are. You have to understand what are is that individual's barriers to getting things done. In some cases, that's meant um, driving away, for instance, from colonoscopy, colonoscopy, colonoscopy to stool testing, at-home stool testing, because people are more comfortable doing that. Um, it may be um, trying to understand what's getting in the way of a woman having a mammogram. So on the screening side, we've really been trying to focus on that and, and even incentivizing our physicians for um, uh, whether they, they they get that outcome. You know, do they actually get a patient to schedule um, a test or to turn in uh, the stool card? I think when it comes to then treating cancer, because because obviously, if you don't find cancer early, then your outcome's going to be worse. Um, I think when it comes to to the treating cancer, um, as much as we can, we are trying to to drive standardization of our protocols, of, um, of overseeing um, whether patients are getting, you know, first line, second line, third line, whatever it is. We have um, a whole part of our cancer enterprise that is focused on um, um, ensuring access to clinical trials for patients of all different backgrounds and really trying to outreach to the community to make people aware of what's available when it comes to cancer treatment. So, so those are some of the things that we're, we've been really focusing on.
3: I'll just underscore um, Caroline's point about our own employees. So when we, many of our employees are also our patients. And so we had data to show that um, there were disparities amongst our employees, as Caroline said, our employees were getting screened at lower rates than our non-employees and then even lower rates when you looked at it by different race and ethnicity. And so um, what we found to be really successful is when peer champions got involved and we recruited a number of peer champions. Some of them were line staff, some were in management. It really didn't matter. Um, But people, people who had personal stories, either their own fear of screening and how they overcame it, or a family member who got screened early and was able to prevent a serious, you know, cancer from progressing. Or in one case, we had a staff member on our own team who did not get screened early. And she has very advanced colon cancer. And she has been speaking very openly to her colleagues and all of her teammates about it. And those personal stories in just regular team huddles um, has made a really big difference. And, And we've been so impressed with how people have taken the topic of colon cancer screening and kept it very serious as it needs to be and told very emotional stories, but also made it light and talked about, you know, how... It's a subject that not everybody wants to talk about, and they actually showed them how to use the Fit Kit and, you know, why it's not so scary, and it's been, um, it's it's just been really rewarding to see how those champions have worked, and now we are partnering with our human resources department to really look at how to uh, leverage the ambassador program that they have for other topics and um, and have those ambassadors also really be our ambassadors for cancer screening as well.
0: A couple of things I'll, I'll add, um, and I think the the you know I think the relatability that's happened I think in many of the populations at risk has been an important move. I think people are being much more verbal in those communities to to and and can. You know, really can't um, overemphasize the importance of of that uh, in that space. I think the other piece that um, probably will be helpful if, if done correctly is in in population who are underserved. We're probably underinsured or not insured, and then as they age into into Medicare, they'll finally probably have the best access in their entire life. Um, and so, which is kind of sad because then they'll actually have services to take care of the cancer and actually do the cancer screening, but it won't happen until they're 65. And we all, when we can all point to all the screening that happens before 65, right? And so, you know, the, the question is how can those communities, Kind of tap into uh, FQHCs or other um, lower cost, higher value healthcare providers in the community to to, to partner to to do preventive care, to do the preventive screening, so that we don't. Because honestly, it's from a from an economic perspective, it makes, and also from a health and longevity perspective, it makes no sense that we're now going to provide healthcare benefits to folks who are now either. Far along in, in their cancer care, or were never screened, and now that's when we actually find them. Right? It makes no sense. It's antithetical to to me as a physician and, and everybody in healthcare that's on this call. So so how do we start? How do we have the the, the I'm posing a question, not an answer, right? So, how do we, as a healthcare system, start thinking about that? You know, in, in order to keep Medicare viable and in order to continue those benefits, we need to start pushing down some of the healthcare into these into these populations. And how do we make that available? And how do we make screening at at low or no cost? And then the question is, then what do you do when it's when someone it does have cancer? We have to find ways to answer those questions. Otherwise, at the end of the day. Those people will we'll catch them too late. Um, they'll be too far along. Sh- their lives will be shortened or at least have increased morbidity. And then we're all, at the end of the day, we're, it's not going to help the, the total cost of care in the system that we're trying to keep uh, alive and well for all of us.
2: Well, as we're thinking about the future of value-based care, uh, we also need to talk about the enablement that that comes into play. And you know, I always, th- you know, I like to say, a journey in value-based care is definitely um, it's a journey, not a destination. I mean, you need continued investment. I mean, you have to if you're going to succeed in taking risk on populations, you have to implement interoperability across the continuum. You have to streamline physician workflows. You have to optimize performance uh, with, within an interdisciplinary team. You've You've got to free up your provider's time, take away a lot of the time-consuming tasks. Uh, you have to have a lot of infrastructure. I mean, things like registries and staffing and uh, collaborative post-acute partners and automation with the EMR. And then there's the whole like analytics and digital health component. You have to make investments in AI and patient outreach and RPM and telehealth and mobile apps and digital front door and on and on and on. So um, since a lot of our audience is you know thinking about you know, how do we either start, you know, this value journey or how do we continue to evolve and, uh, and make these investments? I wanted to ask you all just what should our audience be thinking about when it comes to the investment and implementation of various population health tools? I mean, could you maybe provide some examples of enablement that you've seen that um, maybe your audience can, can learn from as they're looking to develop capabilities in their own organizations?
0: Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll kick this off. And, and um, Eric and I have had these conversations years ago already, so um, I have the, you know, the the thought about that. But so, you know, at Optum, our perspective is before we answer that question has been to understand where the organizations are on their maturity along value-based care and all those enablements. I think, to, and also take a realistic look at the at the needs, what they already have. I think what ends up happening sometimes is people jump into the, the the bright and shiny things without really understanding what they're actual, actually able, what they're doing now, what they're, where their maturity is around network development, around all the things you just described, Eric, um, in, in their quality, in their, you know, all those pieces, do they, you know, they talk about digital front door, do they actually have a digital front door? All these things is to start where, where are you on the maturity? And where are you, what's your, what is your, um, appetite for risk because at the end of the day all the things you describe take investment take time to implement and uh what is their app what is the organization appetite to take on risk because if they don't understand their maturity and they don't understand their risk tolerance then my experience has been and probably a lot of folks um who are listening to this have been that people underestimate their maturity overestimate their ability to take risk and then they spend the next two or three years really have i mean we're financial crises after financial you know, bond ratings dropping, everything else like that. And then everybody's looking around going, I wonder what's happening. So I would just start off the conversation with that. Where are you uh, on that scale? Where are you, what's your, what's your risk um, tolerance? And then start looking at the gaps in those, those enablements to help shore up your maturity that aligns you with the risk that you want to take. And um, so that's just like my, my sort of cone down view to sort of sort of start with the beginning and then they'll know where to go. And then once you do that, then you can develop a value-based growth roadmap, basically, right? What is your engagement strategy? What's your operating model for, for partnerships? You don't need to buy everything in the marketplace. And again, what enablements do you need to, to use? And some of those partnerships are those enablements. And then how does that drive growth and sustainable margin None of these things we desc- that we're describing are cheap, um, either to buy or to partner with. But also the impact it has on your on your productivity during during the during the, the ramp up, and then how do you implement the operating model and the provider enablement model so that you can actually succeed in what you're trying to say, right? And I think again people overestimate. Oh, yeah, we're just going to do this, and you're just layering stuff on top of providers who already overworked, pajama time, you know, on their favorite EMR in the evenings. And so they're not usually actually enabling capabilities, but actually detractors, and they actually provide headwinds. Um, so I'd love to hear what um mm-hmm. Carolyn and Cynthia have on this topic. I mean, you're, you're probably in the work up to your elbows every day on this.
3: Yeah, uh, thank you, I'll, I'll I'll pick up from where I feel like you just gave us a very good macro kind of, you know, set of guidelines i'll take it maybe a little bit more micro um because i think i think for us the most important thing to start with is under identifying and understanding who your population is and really understanding your population don't just assume anything and don't jump don't jump to conclusions about what kind of technology you need or, or what kind of infrastructure or resources you need what kind of staffing until you really know what's going on Who are the patients? What's their demographic? What are their clinical conditions? What's their utilization pattern? Um, What's their engagement level? How are they seeing primary care? Are they engaged with primary care? Really knowing kind of what's going on and talking to your clinicians, really the people boots on the ground to understand from them, what are the pain points? What are they worried about? Where Where does systems fall apart? Um, if everybody just had one outcome in mind, which is to avoid an admission or to avoid a readmission, depending on kind of where you're starting the work, if you just said we've got to avoid an admission or avoid a readmission, what would you do? Like, what's missing? They'll tell you. <laughs> they'll, they'll give you lots of insight. And then the technology is really to make you know that easier, is to figure out all those easy buttons and how to... Um, make it so that people don't have to remember to enroll a patient in a particular program or to move a patient through the system in a certain way. So to prompt them with as much clinical decision support as possible to, you know, really enable workflows um, that are more proactive and don't require, you know, again, people to remember, that... To, you know, to me that's that's critical. If you can't embed something into someone's workflow and make it easy for them to just, you know, help a patient nav- you know, follow through on on a particular care plan, it, it then that, that's where you see it loses fidelity. You know, with every time you you have to, you know, every time you have a manual workflow in there, it, it loses some fidelity. So, I would not, you know, I so often. You know, we're prompted with these are the greatest tools and you find yourself trying to figure out where would I fit this really sexy tool into my workflow because it's so exciting and I love the demo and how would I use it? And then you have to kind of remind yourself, no, wait a minute, (laughs) like form follows function. Like, let's let's actually find out what our need is and then decide if a tool like this would meet our needs so often. That, that, that sexy, you know, shiny object is not what you need at that moment.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I'll just say that I, I think we, we've learned this over the years. And um, the first thing you got to do is what do you already have? And is it doing what it should be doing for you? And we had to do a lot of that discovery. You know, we, we, we're an Epic shop and we, we were not maximizing all the functionality in Epic at all. And so before you start adding all these layers on, um, you really do have to do that and you have to, as Cynthia said, you've got to also try to the extent possible with your practices, whether you know, the ones you, that you, where you employ people or they're, they're in the community, whatever it is, you, to figure out what's the standard way that we all want everyone to do something and then try to get that buy-in. That's the most important change management so that again, you have the information Cynthia's talking about to meet the needs of your population.
0: Oh, real quick, I, I, what I heard from both of the folks from Sierra and I is, is, you know, you have to understand what your, also your value proposition to that community you serve. But it's like, if you don't have a good understanding of your value prop, um, by understanding what your current performance is, identifying deficiencies in the value chain, then it's, and quantifying those deficiencies, then it's hard in my mind to purchase the shiny things or the, and go into risk bearing contracts. Cause you don't know what your value proposition is. You're just you know, just layering stuff in with fancy names at the end of the day is not going to be successful. And I think where there's there's lots of organizations out there who are really doing poorly because they're not doing exactly what Carolyn and Cynthia have described that they've done the hard work to do.
2: You know, as we're thinking about the future of value-based care, you know, there's this big question out there, and I, I seemingly get this every couple of weeks, but like what role do specialists play in all of this? And, you know, we talked about primary care physicians earlier, but we haven't really touched on the specialist community and if you think about when uh, Elliot Fisher uh, coined the term ACOs, you know he was looking at you know having these virtual networks of physicians that included specialists, and you know he looked at you know like every hundred beds in a hospital, you have 88 physicians caring for a patient in an episode of care, and only 30 of those are PCPs, but. We've seen a lot of these ACOs mostly being formed around primary care physicians, but you know the the landscape's definitely evolving. and you know, and there's certainly talk. I, I think it's foreseeable that we might see uh, mandated bundle payments over the next few years with certain episodes of care. So I, I wanted to take our conversation now towards you know just what do we what should organizations be thinking about? you know, in terms of clinically defined episodes of care to align incentives and engage specialists. And, you know, I, I know uh, there at Cedar sinai you've been doing a lot of work with, you know, high-risk patient management and transition to care programs uh, and getting good uh, cost and utilization outcomes with bundles. So I, I'd love to kind of get your perspective on uh, bundle payments in general, and then, you know, kind of where that fits into the integration of specialists in the in the value arena.
3: So we are participating officially in only two bundles, but we've actually challenged ourselves to implement all the super bundles as if we were officially participating in all of them. And we have engaged clinical champions in this work, both in terms of faculty who are super subspecialists. Uh, and, you know, academicians and our community physicians and our from our employed medical network. So really, we brought together kind of our whole pluralistic model um, of all the different types of doctors together in these working groups. And what I have found to be so heartening is that when we talk, when we introduce the subject and we share with them some data to show, you know, what we know about the medicare uh, patients who are you know in these bundled drgs and what we know about their length of stay about their readmissions about their post acute utilization the, the the doctors the clinical leaders inevitably say well we just need to do x y and z and i've been i've been bringing that up for 10 years no you know and it just hasn't risen to the top of the priority list but now that we're looking at it through a value lens, now that we're looking at it through this sort of holistic continuity of care lens, they're thrilled. And we, um, so one of the uh, manifestations of that is that we opened up a cardiac CHF post discharge clinic in the hospital for every um, Medicare you know patient being discharged uh, with started with CHF, but moving to other cardiac diagnoses. Um, run by nurse practitioners, but it's a multidisciplinary clinic with pharmacists and social workers, a dietitian, And I mean, this is something that our advanced heart failure cardiologist has dreamt about for years, but there just really wasn't the motivation to really get it done until we looked at it through the value lens. And now that clinic is, you know, growing and and the cardiologists in the community, many of whom are private doctors, are really seeing the incredible value of having their patients kind of stop in this clinic first and get a, you know, really comprehensive post-discharge visit and then kind of come back to their offices a little more fine-tuned. And we're seeing results. We're seeing the readmission rate impacted by it.
1: I think the strategy is a good one. I mean, we know that, that having strong primary care really is critical to driving value. And certainly what we found is that our PCPs know which specialists are already kind of value oriented. Um, and so the more that we can use those specialists, that obviously works to our advantage. But I think what Cynthia is talking about is really important. I think when, you can, when, when value becomes about quality and doing the right thing for patients, you can catch the attention of every physician. And I think that's often the vantage point we try to go in with. And it's it's not quality to go home and get readmitted a week later. Like that that's just not good quality. <laughs> so it also isn't good for you know total cost of care. So I think those are the kinds of things when we have those discussions, we can bring um, our physicians along who don't have a lot of experience and value because there's that why that at least resonates with them.
3: I'll I'll just say one other point on it is that the bundles work, you know, until we got involved in the bundles work, we weren't really looking at these patients through as a population. Um, You know, we were, you know, they were just each individual patient being going through the journey of, of healthcare. And now that we are aggregating the data and looking at them as a population, and getting CMS data, which is very helpful because it's telling us what's going on outside our four walls, Um, that, you know, the specialists, I think all doctors are data-driven, but the specialists, especially those in academic medicine, are highly data-driven, and they just are eating it up, you know, they're, they're really enjoying digging into that data and getting to the root causes and are really engaged in the work.
0: Yeah, I would add, you know, as, as Optum, as, I mean, as, as our leadership has been very public uh, um, about our, our bets going toward, you know, that we are heavily um, focused on value-based care, and we're not, you know, Optums and say, oh, only in primary care. We don't just say that we are value-based care. Sir Andrew Whitty doesn't just say, oh, we're doing value-based care just for our 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 primary care folks, right? We 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 are we believe in value-based care. Um, so I'll I'll say I'll just sort of state that as it's, it's been very public about that. I would say also from a consulting side of the business that I'm I partake in, I can I can share that a lot of our clients aren't just talking about value-based care in respect with their primary care network. It's it's all in. It's across. They, they understand the total cost of care and the impact. And and I would share that uh, for those organizations who are just putting their toes in the water. Um, the sooner you start moving towards bundles, towards uh, understanding what it's like to be a risk-bearing entity and what it takes to go towards that, it's going to be very important going into the future. And and we just talked about cancer a little while ago, right? So we had about six years of the OCM model from CMI. Now we're at the EOM, and I say I think it also you know look at what CMMI and 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 see and. CMS is doing in the Medicare space to find what other payers will very shortly be doing, right? So if we look at the EOM model specifically, you, you, look, you know, look at the, what, the, what they're focused on, the, the cancer diagnoses that the government is is concentrating on, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, there may be other payers who do the same thing, right? The fact that EPROs or the electronic payment uh, patient uh, reported outcomes is a big piece of that. Another signal that that folks who are just trying to figure out the game that they need to figure out that patient re- reported outcomes could be a very um, important part of how they get incented and paid. Again, back to health equity, right? So EOM has a health equity piece into it. All these little bits and pieces um, aren't. Ju- are not just for primary care physicians. They're across the board, and there's no I, I, there's no conceivable way in my mind that we can understand that we can get a hold of total cost of care and the value equation and leave specialists out. There's I I, I don't see that future. It's going to include specialists, I think, that we'll continue to see some proceduralists or some other folks who may have some sort of niche practices, right, who will continue to earn outside of that bubble, but we're going to start seeing continued movement. Um, I can point to cardiology and what's happening in the nuclear medicine versus CT, you know, like there's all kinds of things that are happening there. We're looking at what is the value of doing that testing, the prediction of outcomes to the risk of your MI. That is through a value lens. It's no longer how much money can my cardiology group make before the end of the year?
2: Well, I had one last question for you all. And, you know, we're talking about this future of value-based care and, you know, but we're also kind of, we have to settle into the present moment as well. And, you know, there was a survey that came out you know, just a few months ago, and they, you know, they surveyed CEOs from all the leading health systems. And the number one thing that is top of the list right now that's on, on, you know, top of mind and keeping uh, executives up at night is workforce. And, you know, I, I can't help but think that You know, value-based care, you know, we've talked about being successful, earning margin, creating sustainability, uh, being viable for the future. But it's also uh, seems to me, you know, this could be an opportunity to to galvanize the workforce and reorient them towards patient-centered care practices. But we have to get over a lot of the malaise and, and the disillusionment that's already there you know, from the broken fee-for-service model, there's a lot of people that are just kind of losing hope. You know, they've been through COVID, you know, nurses are uh, uh, quitting, you know, at record numbers right now, but also physicians, you know, you look at, you know, these uh, primary care physicians, for example, in the fee-for-service world, you know, they're they're dealing with 15-minute visits, they're overbooked, you know, they're, they got telehealth visits crammed in between, they're on this hamster wheel. So um, I'd love to get your take on, just you know as we're planning for the future you know so much of this transition to value-based care it comes down to being able to lead change and how do you engage the physicians and the workforce towards some of these value-based initiatives and and what success stories would you provide our listeners in terms of giving them some hope and some optimism that you can really be successful not only in execution but also uh, creating an impetus for change by you know having your workforce really aligned with the this value-based uh future
0: yes so i think you know in the early part of this this panel i i talked about workforce and behavioral health and i think and i would just echo the comments that were made during that piece basically it's about reconnecting with our purpose right it's shifting the narrative um and making sure that we support that right so that we um what i tell leaders is um you know, burnout or whatever the, whatever the workforce crisis may be. It's not about handing out fire extinguishers, right? The fire, you know, you can go, you can go on handing out fire extinguishers, but I challenge the leaders uh, on, on, you know, that are out there listening to this is what decisions are you making that impact the workforce and are you just building a bigger fire? Uh, on the burnout and the and the problems that you're creating, right? And so so to, how do you change your decision making at the top, right? And so how do you build uh, flexibility and and allow people to grow into their roles? How do you shift them so that it's now a calling and not just you know a job and return to that. How do you re- how do you create and reinforce a culture of satisfaction and safety, right? Not just, oh, it's all about safety. You know, it's satisfaction in my in my mind, it's satisfaction and safety. How do you build that psychological safety in the organization, which is important to safety, but also uh, to job satisfaction, right? And how do you commit to transparent and frequent communication so the decisions that are made that, that are the bright and shiny things, let's think about how that impacts people's day-to-day work. And 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 let's get off our high horses and out of our ivory towers and really say, you know, this is going to be a new thing. And let's let's manage that. How do we break down silos between the clinical and administrative leadership? We sort of talk about the dyads. That's for a lot of organizations at the very top. And as you go down to the organization, it starts to fall apart. Everybody goes to their, you know, tribes. How do we get folks to, to do that? How do we use technology is a force multiplier and not something, another layer to add a new billing system or to, to make people more efficient, but understand we're really not doing that. So those are just, those are just the, those things. And I think I would also challenge leaders that some of their operating costs could be solved by understanding and redesigning workflow and, and, and innovating the operational processes and inviting folks to be part of that solution, and that can also help uh, satisfaction. But again, I'm the consultant in the room, so I help <laughs> the clients with that, but I really am excited to hear what the folks from Cedar sinai yeah. are, are doing in this space. Thanks for all the free consulting. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I, I will say that I'm worried. I'm worried about the well-being of the healthcare workforce and very well worried about the future of primary care because I think the job is so hard even. And I do think that that a value-based model can be a way for primary care physicians to have better work-life balance and to feel more empowered because it's a focus on your panel and not about how many visits you have in a day. And so the more you can move to what Michael was saying about, you know, the mission, like the joy, what, what it means to to be um, a healthcare provider. This idea that you know you get to actually focus on taking care of the patients. The more you can move towards that, the better. I I have found I am trying, and and our organization I think is does a reasonable job of this. To every decision we make, we've got to look at it through a couple different lenses. We already talked about the health equity. We've got to look at it through that lens, and we've got to look at it through the well-being lens. Like we have to understand. What are the implications of the decisions we make and the changes we make um, on our workforce? And we, we have to have transparency as you talked about and bring people in to the change that we're making so that it reflects their realities. And we've done a lot of what you've talked about you know, we've tried to take things away from people who don't need to do it, you know, have people work at the top of their scope, but it, it, it's a challenge because of all the externalities.
3: I'll just, I guess, leave the last comment is, it's, and I heard it from, from the others, is constantly reconnecting people to the why and and through stories. And, you know, and no matter how much we think that people see the big picture, everyone's focused in their own job all day long, kind of, you know, with their blinders on. And when you can remind a nurse, a bedside nurse, or or a, a front office staff member, or anyone who is in the work, you know of of patient care if you can tell them a story of how they fit into an entire journey of what happened to a patient they feel so much better about what they're doing and so just we have to keep remembering to bring stories into our work all the time
2: well, Carolyn, Cynthia, Michael, it has been a pleasure to moderate this discussion. I am optimistic about the future, and I uh, and I know our listeners and audience uh, really appreciate your insights. Thank you for sharing and, and being a part of the future of value-based care. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Thank you Eric.